Paul starts off chapter 3 of Philippians with finally. Haven't you all heard pastors get up and say, now in closing, and now in closing, and finally, and the last point I want to make, and they go on and on and on. Well, sometimes that's what finally means, but not here. Um, Next chapter, we're going to have another finally, and that one does mean finally. But it seems so far from Paul's perspective, even in prison, that no matter what, that he believed everything would work out, that God's providence would take care of all of his needs. And while he was going through this, he would do it with an attitude of joy. For us, we need to have that same assurance that no matter what, God's providence will take care of us, fill all of our needs, and take care of us through life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul, and we thank you for his heart in this letter as he writes back to his beloved church in Philippi. And so, Lord, help us to glean from these couple chapters, Lord, things that we can use today in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, uh, Paul gave thanks for uh, the members of the church. Uh, th- he thanked the Lord in, uh, in verse 4. He said, I thank God for what you did. They had sent an offering from Philippi over to uh, where he was in Rome, and he was using those funds to support the ministry and the things that he had going on. You know, I heard somebody ask me the question today, did Pastor Brian start something new because he never saw them take an offering before? Well, Pastor Chuck always took an offering on Sunday morning only, but never during the rest of the week. And we don't take offerings. You know, sometimes I've had people actually say, well, why don't you guys take an offering? You know, we've always just trusted the Lord. And so we don't ask for price for dinner. If you want CDs from the messages, there's no cost. If you want to use the book table library, there's no cost. How does that all happen? I don't know. There's a, there's a little box back there. We call it the agape box. And it seems like there's always enough in there to cover everything. So um, we just leave it up to you guys to, to do that. If, you've, if you're blessed and supported, then that's how you support here. But Paul was saying thank you for them. He reminded them that the work couldn't have been completed without it. He says in verse 6, a verse, this is in chapter 1, a verse that we've all uh, used for ourselves and I think for others. He was confident of this very thing that he, Christ, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In verses 12 to 14, we saw a great proof text that uh, he wrote Romans 8:28. He was in prison and he said it was for the furtherance of the gospel that even in prison things were going to work out well for him. And then in verse 27 of chapter 1, He said that it's his desire for the Philippians to work together, to be of one mind and to have one spirit. In chapter 2, Paul begins to tell us how we should live. But he tells us four important phrases in that first verse. And these are either rhetorical questions, if you want, or they're statements, if you want, that he's talking about. If there is any consolation, and Jesus Christ himself is the consolation, the source of or the source of our comfort, and especially when in distress. And if there is any comfort, it's a comfort of love. No circumstance is beyond his comfort. It's more than comfort. It's a comfort with love. It says there in verse 1, If any fellowship of the Spirit, 
that every Christian should know what it is to have fellowship in the Spirit. Someone mentioned tonight, they praise the Lord for this fellowship. Because we have that fellowship in the Spirit, you sense the Spirit of God when you come together as a body. And then at the end, the last phrase, if any affliction and mercy, uh, any affection, any affection is from God's heart, knowing God has a heart. In verses 2 to 4, he made some requests. He says, fulfill my joy. That's what he was asking them to do, or bring me joy. Be like-minded, be of one accord, and look out for one another. And then chapter 3 begins with finally, which in this case actually means as for the rest or furthermore, I want to tell you more things. He says again, rejoice in the Lord. I think it's interesting that when Paul's telling us to rejoice, it's in the Lord. It's not in the circumstances. It's not in the trial. It's not in the frustrating things that we're facing. It's not in our anxieties, but it's in the Lord. You know, sometimes we wonder, you know, how can I rejoice going through this mess that I'm in right now? He's not saying to rejoice in the mess. He's saying rejoice in the Lord. That's so important. So Paul lays out for us Christians kind of some things from his past, his present, and his future. In the first 11 verses, he's going to account for his past. Let's read those together. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Rejoice in the Lord. But then he puts in right after that a little not so joyful um, comment. He says, it's not tedious for me. It's almost a little bit of satire. It is tedious for him to write to you about some of these things. He gives a warning about the legalizers who had come into the church. He calls them dogs, uh, a common term for Jews to call the Gentile. It was a, a derogatory expression. But the dogs roamed the cities. The dogs had no home. They had no owner. And they were quarreling. I think Paul wants us to say, hey, we have a home. We have an owner. We've been purchased. And we're not to quarrel. We're to be of one mind. 
But they were evil workers. They were teaching that you had to obey the law in order to become a Christian. They're dealt with in Acts chapter 15 in the book of Galatians. Uh, Paul covers it in much more detail if you want to look into that. And then he does a little play on word with the word mutilation there. He says they're not even of the circumcised, but they've mutilated themselves. He says in verses 3 to, three to 6 that he is a Jew, but he's been completed in the Spirit and Christ. He's of the true circumcision because his circumcision is of the heart, worshiping God in the Spirit and in truth instead of the flesh like the legalizers. So he rejo- they rejoice in Christ, and those are characteristics that you should have if you're not in the flesh is you should be rejoicing in Christ. And it should be obvious to those around you that you have a bounce in your step. You have a song in your heart and that there is an expression on your face that says, I'm different. I have confidence in the situations that I'm in. In verse 7, Paul says, But these things were gained to me that I have counted loss for Christ. His pedigree, his education, things that to a Jewish person would be very important, having been educated at the best school by the best rabbis in Jerusalem, having had all that, he counted that as loss. From the time that he met Jesus, everything in his past was gone to Christ. And it says there many things he had counted, but there was only one general loss because it was the loss of everything. But then in verse 8, it's almost like he jumps 30 years ahead because he's still counting all things as loss. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. All things are, are lost. Not that they weren't valuable to themselves, not that the offering that he received wasn't valuable or the things that he had done, but compared to the excellency of Christ, nothing mattered. What he counted in verse 7 was his salvation, and what he counts now, 30 years later, is his service and his ministry for the Lord. The word indeed there in verse 8 is actually five words in the Greek, five little short words. Yea, indeed, therefore, at least, and even. So the point is, indeed, he counts all things as lost. And it's so important for us not to rely on our past experiences or our past education or things that we have. Some of us have been blessed to have had good careers and jobs where we learned a lot of things. Many of you have gone on and had upper education and you have doctor's degrees and you have things that you have worked for and you have all this stuff, but we can't rely on those things. And that's what Paul is trying to say for us. We can't rely on those past experiences. Um, We also can't rely on our past experiences as Christians. We can't remember, as some like to say, the tent days or the days of the early hippie movement in in Calvary Chapel. We can't go back and cling to those things. We have to count all things as lost today. I wonder, have any of us gone back to things that we counted as loss? Have any of us gone back to something where maybe we had victory over it and we said, I'm going to count that as loss, but then we started picking it up again and we started using it? allowing things to come back in our life that once we had victory over or that we didn't need, where we counted things as loss. Um, I had a friend once who wouldn't have a TV in his house because he was addicted to television. And he would put it out in his garage and he'd bring it in once in a while when there was a game on or something that he just couldn't resist. But you know what? 
it never went back to the garage after that game. It stayed around and it stayed around until he was addicted again. And then he had to man up and go put it back out in the garage. Sometimes there's things like that that we have to do to discipline ourselves. And yet we let those things kind of creep back into our lives. Um, we do that with diets all the time. You know what my wife was telling me this week? You know, it's Thursday, but Monday's coming. You know, so we, we're, we're doing tomorrow's Monday, I think. So in verses 9 to 11, what Paul gets uh, he re, in return, he gets the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. What a great thing that we have as Christians to be able to get to know him personally, get to pray in the Spirit and ask the Spirit to lead us into the Word to a deeper understanding of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul says there in verse um, 9 that he gets to be found in him. What a great thing to be is to be found in Christ, to get the righteousness of Christ by faith, to know that we're righteous, that we're positionally righteous before Christ. And the mess-ups that we did even this weekend with the family, even though we got a little bit tempered uh, over this or that or something didn't go right and we blew our stack, even though all of that, you're still righteous in Christ because it comes to you by faith. It's not in your actions. Living, don't, you can't live and trust in your righteousness. To know him and everything that comes with that. Verse 10 um, it's an interesting verse. I would challenge some of you to read it over and think about it. Make, think about making it your New Year's resolution. But just be careful because it's an interesting verse. It's full of power. It's one of those verses where you want to take and break it down word by word by word and get to know it. So Paul is writing. Remember, we're taking the, the lessons chronologically through the epistles. So Paul is at the end of his life. He's been ministering for 30 years. He's not just a new Christian just getting started. He's about ready to die. It's almost over for him. He's writing his last letters. Next week, we're going to be looking at the last letters he writes, and he's writing to Timothy, and he's writing pastoral epistles, those kind of like those last notes to get out some instruction of what's going to take place. So here he is at the end, and he says, that I may know him. Well, Paul... You know him better than anybody. Look at the stuff you've written already about Christ. You know him. How could you say that you want to know him more? So he says, by, by, by faith there at the end of nine, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. I don't know about that part. <laughs> New Year's resolution, Pastor Mike, that you may know him. Okay, I can handle that. The power of his resurrection. Okay. The fellowship of his sufferings, I don't know. And being conformed to his death. Wow, I don't know about all that. That's a pretty heavy verse. That's what Paul's praying at the end of his life. Now, some of you have professed to be Christians for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and more, 40 years. So you've got the, you've got the time in grade that Paul had. Can you... Can you, can you make this statement that you may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, conformed even to his death? To know him and everything that comes with him. The power of his resurrection. What is the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what power is there in it? First off, it's the evidence that everything Jesus did and said was true. That's the power of the resurrection. 
For you, it's justifying. It's the proof that the cross was accepted and the price has been paid for your sins and you've been redeemed. Life-giving, those connected with Jesus Christ received the same resurrected life. If he's been resurrected from the dead, we will be resurrected from the dead. Those who have gone before us will be resurrected from the dead. So you want to know the power of his resurrection? Know it in those three areas. Evidence, justifying, and life-giving. The fellowship of his suffering? If we're children, then we're heirs of God's. It says in Romans 1.8, join heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, we will also be glorified together with him. There will be suffering for those who believe. And in our country and the way things are changing, we may soon become an underground church. We may be strictly meeting in homes because we won't be able to come to a place like this and have these types of meetings. But our fellowship will be with him. Being conformed to his death. That one was kind of hard to to think about. But when you think about it, it's not to be conformed in the passion of his death. I don't think any of us could take what Jesus took with the scourging and the beatings, the rejections, the whipping, the nails, all of those. I don't think any of us could take that crucifixion, crucifixion on the cross. But it's in the manner of his death. We could be conformed to his death in the purpose of our life. He had purpose. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He went to the cross. So he had a purpose. He was finishing the work of his father. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. So we can be conformed to that. We can run a good race. We can do those good things. But it was also for the joy that was set before him. Whenever our ministry gets to be a chore, whenever our ministry is drudgery, whenever it's cumbersome to do those things that we do in ministry, we really need to check our hearts because Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set for set before him. So we can be conformed to his death. And then, and then the last one was to attain the resurrection from the dead, the resurrection when Jesus comes to take his bride to heaven. We're so looking forward to that. In verses 12 to 16, Paul goes on accounting things that in the last section... He's gone, he's using for the terms of an athlete. Before he was using the terms of an accountant, now he switches to the terms of an athlete. So how should we live in this present journey that we're on? I think we all agree we're on a journey. We want to go to heaven. We're ready to to move on and, and get there. But we need to be honest. And I think when we look at these verses, we'll see some honesty in Paul. Because Paul says, I have not attained to where I want to be. I am not perfected. And for someone like Paul, a spiritual giant, to come to the place of saying, I have not obtained, I'm not perfect, I think that's a a marvelous thing because if anybody was pretty close to it, you would think it was Paul. But I think this gives us an opportunity to say the same thing and gives us freedom to be real. So let's look at these verses 12 to 16. Paul continues, Not that I have already attained or am already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind, and and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, 
to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Again, Paul writing at the end of his life, we're looking at the letters chronologically. Here's some things Paul said about himself. In 1 Corinthians, he said he was the least of the apostles. That's pretty, that's pretty uh, uh, humble. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of apostles and I'm the least of them. Well, that's a great thing to say, Paul. You know, that's pretty, that's pretty right on. I can understand that. In Ephesians 3, which is a letter that was written about halfway through his letters, he said, I am the least of the saints. Okay, now you're not even identifying yourself as uh, an apostle anymore. You, you're going down to all the Christians and you're the least of the Christians. Still a pretty humble guy. In 1 Timothy, which we'll see when we, when we look at his letter to his beloved son in the faith, he says, I am the chief of sinners. So you can see the progress of Paul's life, thinking he was an apostle, realizing he was a Christian, finally coming to the place he's still a sinner at this point of his life. Spurgeon said this, But while the work of Christ for us is perfect, completed, already done, and it is presumptuous to think of adding anything to it, there's nothing we can do to add to the work of Christ for us. The work of the Holy Spirit is, uh, in us is not perfected. It is continually carried on from day to day and will need to be continued throughout the whole of our lives. Spurgeon is saying there is the work of Christ is done and complete and finished, but the work of the Holy Spirit in our life is still working on it. And I could ask you guys to be honest, like Paul was honest here. He says, I haven't attained. I am not perfect. How many of you were not perfect this week? How many of you had to say, I'm sorry to someone because you acted rudely, you were angry, you were disrespectful or whatever? We're not perfect. And that's the kind of stuff that we have to do. And that forgiveness is so, so important. That proves that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. But he says, I press on for the goal, the goal that Jesus had for Paul's life. Paul knew what it meant to put his hand to the plow and not look back. How many of us have put our hand on the plow but not quite looked back, but said, whoa, and just kind of resting there for a little bit. You know, the idea of the plow is to be being pulled by the ox or by the horse, and it's to, it's to do work. Now, the idea is that once you do that, you can't, you can't stop, turn around, and look back, and that's what the, the, the illustration is there. Let me read to you where that comes from. It's Jesus talking to some of his followers. It's in Luke chapter 9. They're, they're, they're going from village to village. Now, it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back, back is fit for the kingdom of God. Paul knew what it was meant to, to be 
pushing on for the goal that was set before him. Paul wanted to lay hold of what Jesus had wanted in Paul's life, and that was the will of God to be performed in his life. And I think God wants to do that with all of us. He wants us to, he wants to lay hold of us to do his will. I have not reached the goal, but what I do is not looking back. Have you ever looked back in your life pre-conversion, before you became a Christian? Boy, there's some ugly stuff back there, isn't there? There's some things that we still can remember that we wish God would just wipe away from us. Stop that. Don't do that anymore. Paul says, I'm, don't look back. I'm not going to look back at those things. But even things that we've done as Christians, where we've stumbled, where we've fallen, where we've taken a break, where we've you know, wrestled with our faith and our commitment, he's saying, don't look back. Continue to press forward the things that are ahead. And it's for the high calling of God, the prize itself, not the benefits that come with the walk of Christ. You know, there's a lot of good things that come from uh, our, our Christian fellowship. I think, again, what was said earlier during that Thanksgiving time, thank you for the family that we have here. I, I look forward to talking to you guys at dinner time and, and visiting over there, see, trying to see what's going on in the lives of us. That's a, that's a good thing. That's, a, that's a, certainly a benefit for being Christians. But the prize is able to run the, the race, working with God for the outcome of his kingdom. In verses 15 to 16, Paul addresses his desires for the Philippians to be united. The problem of unity was facing them. They were being divided over different things. It did not spring from great carnality like in the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, remember, one was saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of uh, Cephas, I'm of Jesus. It wasn't that type of thing, but it was things that were going on inside the church. And Paul wanted to make sure that this pressure pushed them uh, together instead of driving them apart. In verses 17 to 21, he talks about their walk. Walk as you have seen Paul walk and others walk. So brethren, verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who who so walk as you have us for the pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Walk is a manner of living. Others walk contrary. They are enemies of the cross. They set their mind on earthly things. Right there in those first couple verses, the the things is mentioned seven times. And we can get caught up with that too, even as Christians. And we can even try to justify how it's okay for us to have things and put our minds on it. But when it becomes an obsession, when it becomes something that takes over and we set our minds to it, that's when it becomes a problem. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are to be eagerly waiting for the Lord. And so in chapter 4, he does, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy, my crown, stand fast in the Lord, 
beloved. So often we lose our joy because of worry. But we can have a secure mind in Christ. We can have joy no matter what, no matter what's going on. Paul's going to address three different areas that we worry about, that people were worried about back then. People worry about people. We worry about circumstances. And we worry about material things in our life. Therefore, connects these verses with the verse just before it. The resurrection being transformed or conformed to his glorious image. That's where we're going. That's where we're heading. But he wants the Philippians to stand fast in the Lord until that time. I want you to stand fast in the Lord until that time. Paul says that these are his joy, his crown. What a precious comment for a pastor to make to his church. You are my joy. You are my crown. You're my joy. You're my crown. I love you all. And so that's a great thing for us to to know, is to to look out and to see that blessed fellowship that we have. He exhorts the two ladies in verses 2 and 3, be of the same mind. They did help Paul in the ministry, so they were engaged, but something had come up. Something was a problem. He says, be of the same mind and continue on. In verse 4, again, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. So important. And then in verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. A better translation for gentleness would be your sweet reasonableness. Your ability to get along, your ability not to be like these two ladies. Let it be known that your sweet reasonableness be known or your forbearance be known that you can go the second mile, that you can you can go longer in the process and that you are um, uh, able to go and to be reasonable. The Lord is at hand. This is not an exhort this is not an exhortation for the Lord is coming soon, but the Lord is there to help. The Lord is there to encourage us and to give us the help. And then verses six to nine, I think some of the most famous verses, favorite verses of many of us, Paul Paul encourages us to rely on the peace of God. There's three separate phrases where peace and God are used. There's the peace from God. There's the peace with God. And they all come from the God of peace. So the peace from God, what is that? That's what Paul says in the beginning of the epistles. He says, grace and peace to you. He's asking and praying that the peace of God would be given to you. It's part of his salutation in almost every letter to those he loves. He reminds them that peace comes from God. Peace with God speaks of the relationship we have with God once we come to a saving knowledge of who he is. Once we commit ourselves to him, once we ask him to forgive us our sins, we then have peace with God. And the, in Romans 5, 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the act of justification that takes place, when that happens, we have peace with God. And then he inc- concludes there in verse 9, The God of peace will be with you. The things 
which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So what is the peace of God that he mentions there in verse 7? It must be, it's hard for us to, to even comprehend what it is. It was hard for him to apprehend it. Paul says it passes or surpasses all understanding. I think this is telling us something that's kind of unique about the peace of God. It's so wonderful that it can't be a human thing. It's not something you can get from reading in a book. It's not something you can self-will. I'm going to be at peace today. I'm going to have peace no matter what. It's not something like that. This one comes from God. This is something that is completely um, supernatural in the way that that, uh, we get it. We're encouraged there in verse 6 not to be anxious for anything. Now, we've just finished the holiday. Somebody's anxious because their phone's ringing. But... If we just finished the holiday, I'm sorry, I'm having fun with you, Susan, okay? <laughs> but we just finished the holiday, and I'll bet you somebody got anxious in the kitchen. I bet you one of your kitchens had a little too much help in it, too many hands trying to figure out just exactly how things worked. Um, <laughs> one Thanksgiving a long time ago, um, we were at Mary's aunt's house, and her aunt and uncle and another aunt and another uncle were in cooking the dinner. And um, pretty soon one uncle comes storming out and he's not going back in. And he's... Rah, 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 rah. And then pretty soon the other uncle comes out. Rah, 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 and he's not going back. And finally one of the ads came out. Rah, 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 rah. And it was hilarious to watch this thing happen. But it was all because there were just too many hands trying to fix that dinner. So um, I don't know why I told you that. But <laughs> they, they obviously didn't have the peace of God. But we become anxious, and, and how do we get rid, of this anx- and this, get rid of this anxiety? He tells us. It's by prayer, it's by supplication, and it's by thanksgiving. Verse uh, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be no- made known to God. Prayer is general communications with God. It's... It means adoration. It means spending time with him. It means listening to him, meditating, being in his word. It's that whole process of what we do when we communicate with the Lord. Supplication, that's your specific request. Let them be made known. Get them off your shoulders. Lord, we need help with that. We need comfort here. We are running out of money and need some help financially. Let him know your supplications. But then the great enhancer, with thanksgiving. Our prayer life should be full of thanksgiving, not just asking, not just a laundry list of what we have. I think that thanksgiving in your prayers makes them effective and in the process helps remove the anxiety. You can go to the Lord in prayer being very anxious over something, and if you accomplish your prayer time your supplications with lots of thanksgiving mixed in, you will come away from that not as anxious as you went in. I'm pretty sure that that happens all the time. It's, uh, take, it, takes, it takes faith, though, to do this because it's hard to give thanks no matter what. It's hard to give thanks in tough circumstances. It's hard to give thanks when we have unanswered prayers going on. It's hard 
to give thanks when we have strained relationships in our families, in our church, in our community, our neighborhood. But we have to have faith to pray, to give our supplications and to do it with thanksgiving. And then he says in verse 7 that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind through Christ Jesus. It will guard your heart when the pressures of life are happening. When emotions of relationships are out of control, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind and hopefully your mouth. You know, because sometimes, you know, our mouth shoots off and our mind doesn't even click in. And that can be a dangerous time. When things don't go as planned. Have any of you ever laid things out? You've got it all planned and things just don't go as planned. And then you get anxious about things. If you are praying and praying with with the thanksgiving and making your supplications known, that anxiety will go away and your heart will be guarded. Your mind will be guarded by the peace of God, when no matter what happens, Paul's in prison and he's writing to them to be anxious for nothing. And he says in, my, in his example, you can just hear it in the pages of the, of, the, of the writings without him actually putting the words down. I'm in prison, chained up to some Roman guards, and I'm not anxious about a thing because I'm praying, I'm giving him thanks. Remember how the church of Philippi started with Paul and Silas singing hymns in prison. And so that's what we have to get to. Whatever the, whatever the prisons are that you're in, whatever the um, things that we have in our closet, you know, have any of you ever stuffed something in a closet because you just don't want to deal with it? Someday you've got to open that door up and you've got to deal with it, okay? And so we need to do that without any anxiety. The peace of God will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 14, Peace I leave you with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He said in John chapter 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And Paul said to the Colossians, And let the peace of God... Rule in your heart to which also you were called into one body and be thankful. I believe one of the things that we miss as individual Christians is when we're alone, that we're afraid to worship, that we're afraid to give thanks, that we're afraid to praise God. We kind of have to come to a place where we're with a bunch of other people to do it. Uh, You know, guys, I haven't challenged you in a while to get the plastic sheet out and put it in the bathroom, in the shower. So those of you who haven't heard this, you get one of those plastic sheets that you put paper in and you put the words to a couple courses on there and you get some duct tape. Guys like duct tape and you duct tape that to your shower. And while you take a shower, you let it all out. You sing, you sing to the glory of God. Nobody's going to hear you. Nobody's going to know what's going on, but it'll change your life if you put worship into your life. As you go around, it's an important aspect of what we do. Add it to your prayer time. Add it to your cleaning the house time, ladies. Sing, you know, make melody in your heart. Turn up the volume a little bit and just have a, have a great time worship, worshiping him. Remember that all of our worship, whatever key it's in, sounds great to Jesus. He loves it. 
So Paul's to the, to the Colossians, he said, Let the peace of God rule in your heart, to which you were called into one body, and be thankful. In verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praiseworthiness, meditate on these things. Don't we just love to quote that verse to somebody who's down and out and just belly aching and murmuring and complaining? We say, you know what Paul said in Philippians 4, 8, we've even got it memorized. I bet you, I bet you half of you have that verse memorized and you can tell somebody when they're in a, in, in dire straits, they're just, they're just down and out. You can say, finally, brothers, whatever things are true, no matter what, think and meditate on these types of things. You know, the advice in this verse is for everyone. It's for children and parents. It's for husbands and wives. It's for friends and neighbors. And it should give a positive influence that our thought thought life has on us, and it should help us with our outward control. The word virtue in there is interesting because it's the only time it's used in all of Paul's writing is the word virtue. But it was a prominent Greek ethics discussion that was going on at the time. It's only found here and one other place in the New Testament. But virtue was something that the Greek philosophers were talking about. Virtue is something the church should be talking about. Holiness is something we should be talking about and knowing what those things are. So think on these things. Meditate on these things. Verse 8. Things that are true. Things that are noble. Things that are just. Things that are pure things that are lovely, things that are good report. If there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Read your Bible. It's full of stories. It's full of, it's full of things that you can meditate on that fit that verse. Read about Gideon. Read about David. Read about Abraham. Read about creation. And all of those things you'll find you'll be able to give thanks and then in verse 9, Paul's bold to make this statement. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Anybody want to stand up and make that statement? That's a bold statement. The things that you see in me, the things that you see me doing, do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I think it would be great if we could all say that. But here's what he said to do in this thing with anxiety. He said in verse 6, anxiety is dealt with by right praying. Pray in the right way with thanksgiving. In verse 8, he says, think right. Right thinking will help you with your anxiety. And then in verse 9, right living. Live in a right way. So pray. Think on these things. And live a life like Paul. And your anxiety should go away. Paul learned how to live no matter what. In these next verses, he explains it. But I rejoiced in the Lord, verse 10. But I rejoiced greatly that now at the last your care for me flourished again. Because they sent the offering. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity 
Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well and you shared with me. Paul learned to live in spite of no matter what. No matter what was going on, shipwrecks, beatings, prison, he had learned how to live and how to think on the things that were right. He was not a victim of his circumstances. He was not one who blamed the outside world for coming against him. He was never a prisoner of Rome. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He had learned and experienced the secret of God's peace. In verse 13, he's, here's a couple other translations to verse 13 I thought you would like. I can do all things through Christ who energizes me. I can do all things through Christ who energizes me. Have you ever been just so worn out? Even sometimes in church service, I'm so tired. I can't hardly even make it down there to church and so on and so forth. But I can do all things through Christ who energizes me. That's exciting. And another translation is this. I am ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives in me. I like that. I am ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives in me. Paul demonstrated what God can do through someone once he is allowed to work in someone. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul had told us, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. What happens to us when we allow God to work in and through us? What can be happening? So in verses 14 to 23, he talks about provision and the providence of God. Uh, 14, nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, which I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Again, referring back to that collection, that offering that was taken for Paul. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities for when he was staying there. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to you, to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Ephaphorus uh, the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Paul shows he has peace in his heart. His needs, even though his circumstances were not so good, his needs have been met. And God had propo- has promised to fulfill all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Paul is thankful for the Philippians and for their part in what he is doing. But underlying what Paul has been talking to us about, about no anxiety and being content in whatever state you're in. No anxiety, he's in prison. Being content, he's in prison. We face anxiety issues of, that create anxiety in us all the time. We have situations in our life where we, aren't, we are not content. But he had learned to be content in whatever state he was in. What is it that Paul knew 
when he penned these words when he sat in that prison. I think it was that Paul had an understanding of the providence of God. He knew that God was in control. He knew that God was able to supply all of his needs. And he knew God was working all things out for good. I think that's so important for us as we face tomorrow, as we face whatever issues we have in our life, that we remember the providence of God, that he's got things in control. He has the ability to supply any of our needs and that he is working all things out. Even sometimes in the mess that we're in, he's working things out. Wasn't it amazing all the things that Paul was able to accomplish? When we are in the will of God, his providence goes to work within us. And I think the resources of the universe that God controls goes to work through people when they seek the will of God and they yield to it. I think amazing things can happen through us. I think amazing things can happen to you young families. I think amazing things are going to happen in Kenya. I really believe that because you've committed yourself to knowing God's will. You understand the providence of God and you're not anxious. You're not anxious. You're praying for all things. So the most valuable expression of God's providence is, is proving it to us is the fact that he gave his son for our redemption. If he loved us so much and he knew that our eternity was based on our sinful nature and that had to be dealt with, the providence of God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins so that we could be redeemed and that we could be saved. And if nothing else, that should compel us to seek his will and to trust in him and to get to know his word. Let's pray.